Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. How are you? How's your walk going? How are you doing with the dishes there? Is everything all right? Do you need help with that kid? Is that kid all right? Well, you know, take, well just take a minute and calm him down. Calm that kid down. How's it going with the uh, drive? All right? Be careful. Uh, wear your fucking mask. Wear your fucking mask. Wear your fucking mask. Hey, Google. What is the definition of eschatology? Here's the definition of eschatology. The part of theology concerned with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul and of humankind. The soul end of humankind. She kind of slurred that. She swore, Google slurred that a little bit, didn't it? Hey, Google, what's the definition of a conspiracy? Here's the definition of conspiracy. A secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or harmful. Oh, but that's not a conspiracy theory. That seems to be what dictates the uh, behavior of stupid people. The secret plan of a group. Oh, those are the people that actually are generating the conspiracy theories for the stupid people. The creators of the stupid conspiracy theories are actually the conspiracy to make people more stupid, activate their anger, and to vote against their fucking personal interests and the interests of humanity so we get to get on with this eschaton. Today, by the way, I talked to uh, Jim Carrey. Hey, Google, who is Jim Carrey? According to Wikipedia, James Eugene Carey is a Canadian-American actor, comedian, writer, producer, author, and artist. Known for his energetic slapstick performances, Carey first gained recognition in 1990 after landing a recurring role in the American sketch comedy television series In Living Color. Holy shit, I thought we were going to have a full conversation. Yeah, Jim Carrey's here, and uh, it was not easy to uh, to get him on the show. I would have talked to him anytime, but uh, it just never happened. And now, it, sometimes it's a little easier to get guests on with this new format. Uh, he's got a book out. It's an, an odd book. It's an interesting book that he co-wrote with a guy. Um, I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute. But the thing about Jim, Jim Carrey, is that... Uh, I don't know. He's one of those guys where, you know, I've watched him over the years and I always get this 
I have, you know, I have a father who's prone towards depression and I have a sensitivity to it. So when I, when I uh, see people or I talk to people who have that sensitivity to it, it, it kind of gets, you know, I have to, I have to you know, put up some extra boundaries. <laughs> and it was an interesting conversation because he reminded me of something that, that uh, you know, I don't think about a lot, but, it, it, but it's a real thing. You know, he's a comedy store guy. And there was this, a very conscious, you know, for me, when you start doing stand-up, I, I guess that some people, I don't know how they really think about stand-up when they start it. You know, I'm going to tell some jokes. I've written some jokes. I'm going to tell them. But, you know, for some of us, the idea of getting up on that stage and figuring out who you are up there and, and what part of you lives up there and how are you going to be defined up there is a real journey and that is the the journey of the craft the journey of the art if you want to give it that and what was interesting to me in this interview if it doesn't pop as much as as i think it should because i i found myself thinking about it afterwards is that you know after jim is is already a very successful entertainer he was an impressionist and that's how he kind of got started he goes back to the drawing board at the comedy store and he decides he's not going to do impressions anymore so he can figure out, you know, who he is up there. And that's fucking bold, man. And that's what a lot of us did. You know, it's just like you keep going up there. It's not so much to to figure out, you know, how to be funny, but it's to figure out, you know, what are you on that stage? Who lives up there? Which part are you? But by going up there with nothing and bombing and sometimes killing, but just having, you know, moments where you're not sure what's going to happen over and over again... He got to the character that really sort of defined him as a comedic actor, the the I don't give a shit about anything guy, the I don't care guy, which you see in a lot of the work that he did later. And that happened on the stand-up stage. And I just found that uh, I just found that fascinating, really. Um, that that's how he developed that. It's also odd that, you know, having not done stand-up in months now, I, w- I wasn't really missing it, but I, I think there's some other part of me that that is that is missing it. You, you, you know, I feel like there's part of me that feels, you know, certainly, but this was happening before uh, Lynn passed away that like, you know, I, is there more to do? Is there, do I have to do more stand-up work? I feel like my last two specials, um, Too Real and uh, End Times Fun sort of sum up, that's the big work, uh, certainly for this period of history we're living in. And there was this, this feeling I had, it was like, am I done? Do I need to do any more? And it's the same with acting. It's like, do I need to do more? Do I need to do more of other people's work? Have I challenged myself enough? And now, oh, my potatoes are ready. My potatoes are ready. Hey, Google, how long do you cook a baked potato? Bake one hour or until skin feels crisp, but flesh beneath feels soft. Okay, all right. So... What I was saying is that bef- even before Lynn passed away, you know, I had this, you know, I was sort of blank slating a little bit, which is uh, some uh, equivalent of uh, creative flatlining. And now, like, I just don't know, you know, and but but I'm starting to feel that the part of me that lives on a stand-up stage is starved. And, and the other thing about, you know, being with, with Lynn for the time we were together, she was a great audience and I kept that. I kept that muscle working because she loved to laugh and I loved making her laugh. So it was always engaged. And I don't even know, I'm not sure what that muscle is like right now. I guess the point being is I, d- I do feel like I've, I've done everything that I set out to do 
I would have liked to have won one award. Do you know what I mean? Just one award of some kind. They, I know they don't mean anything, but one, you know, not, but like a big one, you know? Like, uh, I would like to win a, uh, a Grammy or a, a Peabody or an Emmy. It doesn't really fucking matter. It doesn't do anything, but I don't know. That'd be nice, but I don't think I'm, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen for me. What's my big prize? A new kitten. Here's a new kitten. So listen, people, uh, Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey's a force. You know him. You all know him. Everybody knows him. He was it. He was all of it. But he's co-wrote this interesting book. It's called uh, Memoirs and Misinformation, a novel. Uh, it is, it's kind of a novel, but it has bits and pieces of real stuff in it. And, and this guy, Dana Vashon, is a, he, he can turn a phrase. He's got some funny in him. And Jim's, you know, there's parts of Jim's story and parts of it are fictionalized. Um, but you can get that wherever you get your books. Again, Memoirs and Misinformation, a novel. And uh, here's me and Jim coming right up. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. You know, it's it's a day to day fight against uh, sadness and anger, but I'm fine. Yeah, I could offer you some help. Actually, I think I could. Actually, well, uh, well, lay it on. Know, me. We could talk about supplements. We okay. could talk about uh, tyrosine. We could talk tyrosine. Talk about uh, yeah. I don't know that one. Well, tyrosine is the uh, chemical in your brain that's responsible for enthusiasm. Oh. Tyrosine. Yeah, tyrosine. Hydroxytryptophan as well, which is uh, what people who do ecstasy take on uh, Sunday afternoon. To so they kick. don't kill themselves on Tuesday. Oh, I see. So I get it. Helps them ease out. That's right. <laughs> Builds up the dopamine and serotonin again. So those are well-prepared, well-prepared drug users. It's a full-time job. Yeah. Oh, no, there are. There are some sure. people who are up and down medicating themselves through life completely. Oh, yeah. how about the uh, microdosing people that don't realize they're just fucking tripping? Oh, yeah. Tripping yeah. all the time. All or the, the time. people that are on Adderall, you know, they crush up the Adderall and yep. snort it and yep. stuff. And, yeah, uh, that's how the know, doctor prescribes it. They yeah. get a ton of work done, but it's all bad. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing good. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing good. So these are the, so your supplements are, I'm on, I'm on a very small supplement intake diet. I just take the uh, liposomal vitamin C and a vitamin D right now. I'm, I'm anti-tumeric and I'm, uh, you look good. I feel all yeah, right. I've heard your turmeric uh, rant. Yeah. 
It's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I like your bits also about the uh, shortening the distance or the time uh, between, oh, between uh, fuck you and I'm sorry. Blowing up. Yeah. Fuck you. And I'm sorry. That's really funny. And then taking the walk, winning the argument and then looping back to apologize. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Very yeah. real. You know how that Very goes. Real. You know how I that do. goes. I do. I do. I have to apologize constantly. Let's start with, I can, we can start with the book and then yeah. Move backward from there. It's like, uh, I mean, I, I've I've read about a third of it. I'm I'm trying. You know, I've, I'm yeah. I, I got my own schedule, but I understand. I understand. I understand what's happening. No, it's got nothing to do with the book. It's just, uh, yeah. you know, um, my brain's in a, a weird place. But I'm I'm trying to do my homework. It's an incredible kind of thing with, that we're facing these days. Everybody is multitasking, mm. and uh, I never stop. It's just literally. I took ten minutes to take a breath before I got on the air here. Well, yeah, but I'm just overwhelmed all the time. And, you know, uh, really, I, I, my ability to compartmentalize is, is limited. So Everything uh, is changing so rapidly. It's unbelievable. We're in the midst of a convulsive historic moment yes. in so many ways at once. Yes. That it's just mind boggling. Are any of them good, Jim? Yes. Honestly, I honestly believe that we are, you know, it's the crowning of a new age. It's the crowning of a, you know, the birth. we're going to get up. Yeah, it's a birth. It's a, it's a painful labor. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a great new world, you know? I okay, really good. I well, I'll that. hold on to that. So with the, with the partnership in the book, now, wait, did you have an idea before to write a book and, and you were like, some, I imagine people have been pestering you to write a memoir for uh, probably three decades I have no idea. I had no designs about it at all. Right. It really all came from a moment in time where I had stepped through the Truman door, uh -huh. you know, which I've done several times in my life and try to kind of grow another branch that I could bring back to the tree. Yeah. You know, I, I was spending time in New York in the West Village and uh, becoming an artist, you know, and right. trying to breathe life back into the West Village scene. Yeah. And, uh, just and you. I rented myself a space there and it was so much fun. And just, I was just, you know, big bay door open and uh, painting and going wild with music at four in the morning and uh -huh. dispatching drunks from the bar next door. And it was an incredible experience. And uh, I was really deep into that in a really terrible winter. And yeah. uh I wanted someone to give me kind of a perspective or like an, maybe do an essay around the work I was doing. It was all fairly apocalyptic. The paintings and, of uh, uh, popular, horrible people? No, not that. Uh, oh. That came later. The, the okay. cartoons came. That was a symptom of uh, the, uh, the liar. Right. Uh, the cancer that we must remove. Uh, the malignant so I was, pig man. Yeah, the, the melanoma. Yeah. That, that belies a, a deeper sickness. Yeah. Um, I'll say yeah. That. Yeah. It's crazy. Not an unfamiliar sickness, though, is it? No, it isn't. But it ha it's it's reached epic proportions. Yeah. You know, uh, since Gordon Gecko said greed is good. Well, you know, it's uh, interesting. I was know. trying to do a joke, Jim, about about the how he's the envy of all narcissists because he actually succeeded in making it all about him. Actually, everything. Right. Everything, everything. Well, yeah, there's a big danger there, so it's really tough not to concentrate on it. You know, sure. Not so to you're. Take care of it. So this is so before I put that. A lot yeah. of energy into yeah. trying to get that out of there, but but before that, I was trying to meet a writer and maybe talk about an essay around the paintings and Dana Vachon, uh, who had no interest in that whatsoever. Sure. <laughs> was a really serious writer and didn't want to do essays about paintings. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, he came in just be, uh, uh, under that uh, under that guise to just meet me and say hello because he had been watching me online and some of the ridiculous things I was doing were were appealing to him, like something as simple as boing. I just got up one day and I. I uh, tweeted out Boeing because yeah. I couldn't describe my joy in any other way. Have you ever felt the Boeing man? Sure. Sure. <laughs> I, I, I sometimes I glimpses, glimpses of the Boeing. I usually fight the Boeing. I, I innately fight the Boeing. Fight the Boeing that be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's is that because you have uh, a need to keep the well full, the pain well for your art. I, I don't, uh, you know, I, a lot of people believe that. I, I mean, I've heard that, but like, I, I've never had to, uh, to, to work to keep that well full. I, no, you know, it's like, an easy I, thing. Well, well, no, I just never, it never dawned on me that people would do that on purpose. You know, when people yeah, say the, that. Yeah, the rain gathers and the well gets full. Yeah, yeah no, I, sure. I, I, I'm yeah. just, a, a joy makes me nervous, Jim. That's all, it just makes me nervous. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to yeah. behave around it. I end up crying. I know, especially in this time, but, but in this time, it's like, it's almost like you're afraid, you're afraid to step out and be joyful. You're afraid to kind of affirm the positive and stuff. But I, I'm telling you, it's, it's a big moment in our history and, and it's a wonderful time to be barely alive. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's an exciting and time. fingertips. And yeah. uh, so, okay, so, so Dana says he doesn't want to write essays about your paintings, but he enjoys your single word joy tweets. And that's where the... <laughs> The romance. He begins. came to meet me. He came to meet me, and we just struck up a friendship right away, and uh, we kept talking. And yeah. we had kind of a he's East Coast, I'm West Coast, so we we had this Skype friendship happening, uh-huh. and uh, and the the conversations got so interesting. Uh, I was doing a lot of viewing at a certain point. I yeah. was kind of hiding out uh, from the world. I was going through a lot of deep currents in my life and uh, like surviving. What? Oh, like major traumatic relationships and things like that that happened. Uh, so you know, PTSD keeps me uh, very selective at this point, uh, you know, and the atmosphere. Do you feel like, do you feel like that you, you actually had PTSD from it? Yeah, I definitely do. I've been through some things that, that uh, made me uh, jump at the slightest sound. Absolutely. And, uh, or the uh, slightest, slightest hint of a relationship. I, I get a little terrified. Yeah. Do you, have you tried that EMDR? Yes, yes, I've done a little of that. Yeah, I did a little yeah, of that. Absolutely, What'd it was interesting. About? It was interesting. It's a long process, though, mm. I mean, going through every detail of a traumatic situation. You know, it's to like, find it's, the hot it's spot. Very, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's, but I, I recommend it. It's pretty interesting. Anything that lets you know yourself a little better, you know, and I think what's that's lurking true. in I there, think I think true. is great. Yeah. yeah. Plus, it's good material. It's all good material. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. It, it it can yeah. be. So, all right. So you're 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 in that kind of uh, you're running from the the idea of uh, of a relationship. And- I wanted to, and and I think what happened is Dana and I had the same desire, and that was to to study persona. What why what we're doing? Why mm-hmm. we're building these scaffoldings of uh, you know kind of um, I'd call them. Uh, you know, abstract scaffoldings of who we are. You know, I'm a Canadian American and I'm this and I'm that and I'm a Catholic and I'm a that. And it's all abstract stuff. And when you drill down, there's no you left. Is that, you is get that, rid of the abstract stuff. Sure. So okay. that's kind of what tripped us into the uh, Advaita Vedanta, which is the, the ancient Hindu uh, structure of uh, believing there's no two things, you know? Yeah. And... Uh, and so 
I really seek freedom that way. And the book kind of hints at, at that as the, uh, the true identity is waiting for you when you claw your way out of the sarcophagus of the personality that you've created for yourself. I used to say that most personalities are, are just a reaction from someone telling you you couldn't do something early on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or reactions to fear. Yeah. Reactions to the ego saying you're not going to have. It's like the book is about the fear of erasure, which we all have. Right. Of course. Right. You know, and, and our obsession with relevance, but right. not relevance that just makes you do all right in your life. The kind of relevance that lasts beyond your death to the end of the program. But don't you, you think know? that this is something, you know, specifically relative to um, artists or people that with power that, you know, I don't think anymore. I don't think anymore. I think the internet, the, the social media, everybody's begging a billion strangers to touch their subscribe button and open their notifications. And they're all trying to, you know, get to that place, which we got to. And, uh, but when we got there, we realized, okay, this isn't actually going to make me happy. You know, the transcendence of this at moments, I, I don't purport to be able to transcend this stuff and stay there. I don't believe anybody who, who does say that, like the, I'm just an enlightened being and I never feel anything but this enlightenment. Uh, you know, I get glimpses and man, I'm free when the grasping stops. But but don't you find having you found that, you know, blowing yourself through those walls, like, you know, you, even, you know, being able to become egoless or to uh, rid yourself in whatever meditative state of all these manifestations of of uh, persona and, and uh, false self uh, that, you know, you do land on something that is authentically you. I mean, you don't mm -hmm. come to the bottom of that. And you, you're there's but it's not a bigger you. you. Right. It's not an indiv It's not it's not a relative you. Okay. It's not a you that relates to other yous. Right. Okay. Yeah. The freedom comes in there only being one you. Yes. You know? Yeah. And it includes the table and the computer and the, and the ocean and the, the trees. And you try to breathe without them. You know, you can't. That makes me a little possible. tired to be that expansive. I just, I found that <laughs> very exhausting to be carrying yeah, it in every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. It's uh, for me, it's just a moment of freedom whenever I remember it. Good. It's like just to remember that you're this you're the space in which all of this is happening is just huh. Yeah, right, right. And 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 ultimately right. you're just part of the frequency and, and you can a, hang on to that for a minute. Yeah. And then and then the 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 illusion gets so compelling again and your individuality gets Or else so you just compelling. have to, you know, make coffee. Yeah, I mean it's a, it doesn't That's I right. mean it can be that simple the illusion. Yeah. Like I gotta sure. eat something. <laughs> right. It's time to eat. Time to feed the body and brain. Right. Exactly. But I feel like a fragment of myself, this body and brain, I honestly think is a fragment of myself. So I'm being affected by all this stuff socially with all, all the needs of people and the, the protests and all that stuff at the same time. It's weird how this this book has been kind of prophetic in ways. You know, it's it's uh, it's turned out to kind of express some of the things that that are going on, including the toppling of statues, you know, yeah. only we did it in a silly way. We went to to Disney because it was the only place that we could uh, topple a giant dwarf. And that just appeals to me in so many ways. <laughs> yeah. No, I think the whole book reads very it, it, like from what the, the part I've, I'm in it and I'm and I do intend on finishing it. It's been very funny and it's I, I like the I like a good fucking uh, satire of uh, 
of the business we're in and the culture we're in. Like I've read, uh, I've read other ones. I always enjoy them. I liked, uh, you know, I like Bruce, Bruce, Bruce Wagner stuff, Mark Lehner stuff like, and, but this stuff is like, you know, the fact that there is a, there is a, a true story within it or as true as a story of your life could be uh, in these different manifestations of Jim Carrey uh, is within it, I think is an interesting added. Um, I definitely have the inside look. Yes. Sure. Well, I mean, what was the writing process with you and Dana? I mean, did you pitch him chunks and then he wrote things? Yeah, he, we did that. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we also, toward the, the last few years, we got in a room and just jammed 12 hours a day. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, he's a magnificent prose writer. Yeah. So I learned a lot about that. And we filled in each other's gaps and uh, it was it was wonderful. So I, I love telling stories and making up things that don't exist. And yeah. And uh and I have a lot of uh, experience to share and, and uh, a, a well that's pretty deep. You did know, you ever live? I, you never lived in Hamilton, did you? I lived in Burlington across the bay. Yeah. Uh, before I came to, in, into comedy, I had put my applications in at Stelco and DeFasco. It's, I don't think it's, it's not running anymore, that mill, is it? I don't think so. One of them went out of business, I believe. It's the old thing, man. It's the old thing. Yeah, if the industry moves... You know, you're Detroit, you know, and yeah. you got a deal. Yeah, it yeah. was pretty, it was, Michigan. it was pretty heavy. So yeah. where, so Burlington's yeah. across the water from there? Burlington's right across the water, across the, the, the Bay Bridge. And that's where you grew up? That's right. That's where kind of my most mischievous years happened. It was like uh, from 11 to maybe 14. Oh, really? And then my father lost his job for the second time. And, uh, he was uh, too old to get another job that was in a, a corporate structure. Uh, we moved to Scarborough and we got a job as a family being uh, security guards and janitors. So I got thrown into the middle of this factory, this steel truck rim making factory, huge factory floor that I had to clean with sweepers and stuff like that and the, and the, the bathrooms. So uh, I was in the middle of, you know, a very interesting situation. There were like two factions of people that kind of didn't get along. And I was in the center of that. And uh, they used to defecate in the sinks and uh, stuff like that. What? Which factions of people? (laughs) Well, I I don't want to say, but uh, there was just like different, uh, different religions clashing within the factory. No kidding. And uh, daggers and all kinds of things going on. Wow. And, uh, and I, cleaned the place. And so the, you know, you really, you know, haven't developed your character until you've had to uh, clean urinals from factory worker bag scratch. Um, yeah. You know, when they, when they go in after a real hard shift and they stand there urinating and like scratching their bags and in, in euphoria, you know, and, and I'm the one that had to, you know, take the skin samples uh, uh-huh. and uh, collect them. Uh-huh. Yes. And the, the pubic hair. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, that was my job. Master of pubic hair. But so you like, and, but where'd you start your early life? Uh, I was in born in Newmarket, Ontario, which is about, uh, I don't know, 25 miles north of Toronto. And you were like, the, how many kids? How many were you? I, we had, uh, I had two sisters and a brother. Older? And all older? Older, all older. So and you're the uh, last one. I was the baby and I was uh, the gifted child, I guess you'd call it. And uh, it really was an imitation of my father, who was this insanely, uh, I don't know, joyful, incredibly funny, 
animated character that just didn't tell a story. He became the characters and he was, oh, like this, everything I've done in my comedy career can be traced back to that origin. You love that guy. And uh, love that guy. Love that guy so much. And uh, and I used to watch him as a little kid. And we used to watch Ed Sullivan together and yeah. Rodney Dangerfield on Ed Sullivan. And I had no idea what the jokes meant. I was just laughing because my father was laughing. <laughs> you know, people were laughing in the studio. And it yeah. was just magnificent. And I ended up being with Rodney later on. So How great is Rodney? So wonderful, man. So wonderful. And I got a, 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 a beautiful email from Joan Dangerfield about the book because Rodney comes into the book. And uh, and I and he's treated in a kind of a really uh, avant-garde way. And we can get back to Rodney, but so you're growing up. Your dad's a guy that you know gave you your faces, and yeah. and his charisma and his. Ability. And my mom was the artist, so I got the artist from her. She was a painter. I got the best. Of, I, she was a an artist. She used to get up in the middle of the night and make these beautiful murals and stuff for our rooms. And really, the only peaceful time she had. So yeah, she used to do that. So. It's weird. The first 40 years of my life, I was mining the the gold from the talent my father gave me. And then suddenly, like that, like overnight, I became an artist. Isn't and that interesting? It's like I was spending time with my mother suddenly. Isn't that wild how that stuff is carved into the neural pathway so young? It's incredible. Yeah. So yeah. When, what? now you say your dad lost his job twice, so you had rough times a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah, we had rough times. And I went from being an A student to not being able to hear the teacher, Charlie Brown's teacher. Oh, blah, really? Blah, 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 yeah, yeah. Like that. And I was so angry. I blamed the world for uh, messing with my father. So I was really kind of in a, uh, you know, really uh, angry state of mind. I just wanted to fight. Did it break him? It did. It broke his heart. Yeah, it, def it definitely broke his heart. But then, you know, as I say in the book, at a certain point, you know, I made him laugh so hard one time that his dentures fell out of his mouth. Nice. And at and from then on, he started dreaming through me and for me, you know. So he gave up his dream. You know, he was such a funny guy. Everybody said you could have been. And even Rodney said Rodney was in love with uh, Percy Carey. And he just like he would marvel at him and go, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> Where you come? What the hell are you doing? Why aren't you in the Catskills, man? You know, kind of thing. And uh, he was just joke funny, man. Joke funny. That's so funny because I started. That's my dad was uh, is a, a bipolar guy, and my mom used to say to me when I was in high school, she used to say, uh, "You know, why don't you go upstairs and make your father laugh? You're the only one who can." And I get that up was there me with my mother, right? And I get up there, and my dad be like, "I don't want to live anymore." And I'm like, "Ooh, tough crowd, tough crowd." <laughs> <laughs> run around the room and make it sound like a genocide <laughs> yeah it's crazy yeah there's always a sick parent you know your I, mom was I ask a lot of my mother was not well you know she and she was on a lot of prescription medications mm. and in those days it was just like have some more candy yeah yeah you know what it was really funny one time my mother was smoking she smoked like a fiend and uh she had switched to uh menthol benson and hedges right and uh I said, you, that smells weird, mom. What, what are you smoking? And she was like, they're menthol. The doctor said they're better for me when I have a cold. What? He probably did say that. at that time said that he, she, should sm she should smoke menthol. That is so colds. fucking nuts. <laughs> 
That yeah, is so nuts. It's the dark ages. We haven't, we're not long from the dark ages. Well, either. we're not. I think we're re entering the actual Middle Ages. Um, oh, yeah. They're trying to drag us back in there. Oh, my sure. God. We, you know, these, yeah. like that sort of, I, I don't want, let's not digress into that. But, um, <laughs> but okay. So, so after the, the, the second kind of, when did you start doing the comedy, if you don't mind my asking? Well, again, that was my father's urging. He's, he, he, you know, I was ripping the house up every time company came over and I was known in school and everywhere else as the cut up and the guy who was just always doing outrageous stuff. I used to do impressions of like Paul Lynn choking on a piece of meat and stuff like that. They were all really out there things. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, can you do that you know, one? at a certain <laughs> Uh, Paul Lynn, here discuss block. Uh, the center square to block. Oh, you people are. Ah. I don't know. I haven't done it for a while. That's Gotta good, get man. that one back up and running. That was good. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I used to do that. And at a certain point, my father and I think we were just at the end of our ropes because we we walked away from that factory job. Yeah, because it was affecting us in terrible, negative Sounds ways. Like it. I mean, there was a lot of like, you know, uh, bigoted talk at the table, stuff like that. It was like we were just turning into people that we were not monsters and monsters, hateful yeah. monsters. Yeah. And uh, I was just trying to imagine how to fix people's breaks and stuff at night when I went to sleep. And uh, I, I had a baseball uh, bat on my cleaning cart uh, that was ready to go. Oh, you know? wow. <laughs> I was ready to go. Rough. And, uh, and at a certain point, we looked at each other and we just said, we got to go. Yeah. We, and we had nothing to go to. Mm. We literally went camping for about six months into the winter. Oh. And uh, Was that nice, though? It was better than the terrible job that was turning us into monsters. Okay. It literally was uh, a step up what'd to you, have nothing. What did you learn in the forest? Uh, well, my my uh, the, the the guy that would become my brother in law taught me about sex. Oh, that's and, good. You know, at night he would talk to me about what what to do to a lady. Yeah, and uh, all of that. So the first time I ever had it, I tried everything he talked about. Yeah, how'd that uh, go? Yeah, it was good. Oh, it was good. good. It was uh, <laughs> it was the. Uh, it was a surprise, you know, it was a party and I met somebody and uh, she lived upstairs and I, I went up there and I remember trying everything in the world and, and, uh, and she really, she, did, I don't, I'm not sure if she noticed that I was a neophyte, but, uh, I remember it very well. And, and the, the Sticks Grand Illusion album was playing. Oh, lady. So, it's a grand illusion. <laughs> Deep inside, we're all the same. Dun, 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 dun. I'm sailing away. Set an open course for the urgency. They were, they yeah, were huge. Yeah, yeah. Come to that. It's fantastic. Oh, great. Great. So you did good. <laughs> oh, I exploded. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes, I did all right. I think I did all right. But uh, but there was also just this thing. We got to a point where my father said, I just heard about these places called comedy clubs. Yeah. And uh, would you like to go down to Yuck Yucks in Toronto? And my mother suggested I wear my best polyester suit. Nice. And what uh, color? my Blue? dad and I was a white polyester suit. I was way ahead of the Steve Martin curve. Nice. And... Uh, and I went down with my dad 
And the big, uh, the big routine I did at that point uh, was imitating the Carol Burnett show. Mm. Uh, I was doing all t- Tim Conway's uh, characters. How funny was that guy? Jesus. No, he was so fast on his feet, man. Right the last time I met him, he was he was getting up there. And man, the guy was quick still, yeah, yeah. really quick. Very funny. So you're doing the Burnett riff. Yeah. And uh, at Yuck Yucks, they had this thing where if somebody wasn't going over well or wasn't, uh, you know, uh, at that certain level of hipness, yeah. uh, they would start playing the theme to Jesus Christ Superstar. Hmm. Uh, to get you crucify stage? him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Mark Breslin would get on the, on the mic backstage and say, totally boring, oh my totally God. boring, totally boring. That, that guy and having that kind 15 of 15 years old. Oh my God. And I didn't go back for two years. I left there that night and I didn't go back for two years. And then I went back and killed it. You know, it was good for me and it's good. Those, those, tanks you do are really good for you i guess but what'd you do for the two years prepared oh so you were doing open mics (laughs) elsewhere no i was just coming up with stuff no shit i was coming up with stuff and i watched the other comics and i and i watched the audience and what they're looking for and you know at first i guess you just uh try to fit in try to fill that let me ask you something though around this stuff around like you know the new realizations versus the life that you lived before the realizations is that you know how do you frame you know what you may have once viewed as mental illness you know i i'm I'm assuming that currently you have a different take on it than you might have had a decade ago and i guess the, the the deeper question is when you started doing comedy like for those two years were you were was your heart heavy no it was always, for me, I created out of a place of joy and mm-hmm. out, of, out of a place of wanting to free people from concern, oh. like my mother. Oh, it right, really right. was born out of that. So, you know, I'd to make her, her feel bed. better. When she, was, when she was in pain, I'd get up on her bed in my underwear and be the praying mantis and right. drive her crazy until she was laughing hysterically and holding her belly and going, it hurts. Right. <laughs> and yeah, so, yeah. And, uh, and uh, so... At a certain point, I realized, oh, I could actually do this for the world. I could actually do this for large groups of people. What point was that? Freedom so yeah. from concern. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. That's, yeah. So that's really where it came from. It's a ministry. Yeah. Huh. Kind so of. it was never self-medicating. Uh, I think it it became partly that. Mm. It, you know, art always becomes a way to express those deeper feelings. Sure. But, but I but I honestly think it's born, and it still is born out of trying to free people from from concern even if it's taking them you know head on into the concern yeah so that it dissipates the intensity of it yeah so when you when you went back to yuck yucks and you killed that was the beginning of the career then yeah and then i became a featured player at yuck yucks featured player in the theater of the absurd and when did you uh when did you like come to la Came to LA. I met a guy named David Holliff, who was managing uh, Howie Mandel, and uh, Canadian guy. Yeah, Canadian guy. Yeah, and he was one of those few guys back then that could see the next level, that could see to the next yes. stage. Yes, and uh, there were a lot of people that didn't really see the where things could go, and uh, you know now you can you can stay in Toronto and do just fine, you know, and, and but, but, great, but you know? I mean, I get that, but I mean, you know, you're going to be like, some people can do all right. And, and that just means, you know, you get to do all the yuck yucks twice a year. 
<laughs> yeah, but I mean, there's SCTV, you know, there's uh, sure kids in the hall. There's some great stuff. That's oh, no, of course. But I mean, as yeah. a stand up, though, like at the beginning, were you really thinking that like stand up was the thing? I didn't know. I, I had a dream about being uh, being an artist that could do a lot of things, mm. you know, and not having boundaries. Uh -huh. you know? And I've always I've always kind of believed that uh, there's a there's no limit to the areas I could kind of sneak into. Well, I mean, it's clear, like the style, I, the way that you sort of did what you do early on, you know, was sort of like you definitely somehow pushed the envelope uh, even, you know, with familiar things, you, you know, even with impressions there, your yeah. approach to them was sort of, you know, uh, kind of got pretty out there. Yeah. I was the man of a thousand faces. Sure. I was the rubber face. Yeah. Right. But you're always able yeah. to, even when you did characters, you know, create a different time zone for everybody. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's the key. It's the basis to one of my, my, my most serious beliefs and my, my strongest beliefs and that, involvement and immersion in someone else yes and and in fact in your own work yeah. is heaven yeah you know i mean i was i was in my studio painting in new york one time and i walked i took a walk for a couple of blocks and i found this wonderful little park where these guys were playing soccer and i felt so free from the painting because it, it involves your heart your head and your hands it it, it takes everything yeah right right and uh and I always wondered why I was so free and felt so good and euphoric doing it. And then I watched these guys play soccer. I watched this guy chasing the ball. And I went, that's it. I, could, I was compelled by that guy who was so involved with getting the ball. And that's why all, all sports work, you know, all art works on the same level. And that is presence. You know, presence is addictive, man. And when someone is fully present, like Michael Jordan is in the zone. Yeah. It's like, it's addictive, man. You cannot, you know, uh, Meisner, one of his, one of the uh, tenets of his technique is that if you are actually interested in what you're doing, you'll be interesting to watch, hmm. you know? And that's why we watch babies because they discover things for the first time. Sure. You know, and that's why we watch art. That's why we watch everything. When you look at Da Vinci, you're seeing his presence on the canvas. Yeah. You know, right. And, and it's addictive. You can't not be compelled by it. Yeah, and I think that's also something about that's part of the addiction to live performance as well. Yes, in the moment. Yes. When you have the sense that somebody, I mean, we all have plans, you know, but when you have the sense that somebody is like kind of discovering their own material as they speak. That's the best. You know? I was just watching, yeah. uh, like, you know, I've been like, I've been home, you know, and I, and I can't go out and do yeah. the work, you know, so I've been watching, you know, guys. I watched this documentary, oddly, on Rodney the other night, which was great. But I turned on that that uh, that first prior special last night. I haven't watched it in oh, a yeah. year or two, live yeah. in concert. And it's, it's so beautiful. Oh, it's. Did you ever notice that he comes it's a out on fantastic stage. time capsule? Yeah, but he comes out on stage, and they're not even back from intermission yet. Like he walks out on stage in Long Beach, and there there's like a hundred people looking for their seats. They don't even know yeah. he came out, and I'm like, what? He doesn't the care. He's I not about that. He wasn't about showbiz. He wasn't about the glitz. He was about let's connect. Yeah, I'm gonna connect. Yeah, you know, was, I'm gonna connect with myself. Right. Right. I'm going I'm to play these characters like they're just they're happening in front of you right now. And the best actors do that. You know, they have to rediscover the part every time they do it. 
If you do 10 takes, you have to rediscover it every time. That's the job. In the moment. In a way. Yes, the job. So, all right, so when do you come? So the guy who, who manages Howie says, I'm going to make you a star kid or what? He says, you, could, you know, we should go to L.A. and do that. And there, I had been to L.A. once uh, with uh, Demi Thompson and Ron Scribner were, were a couple of guys that were managing me very early on. And uh, and uh, then I came back. Uh, I had a bad experience in L.A. Boy. I was supposed to do The Tonight Show. And they set up this huge uh, showcase at the Improv one night. And it was two two days before I was supposed to do the Tonight Show, and Jim McCauley was there. And yeah, everybody was very excited about this new kid from Canada that had been talked about, and uh, I had a lukewarm night. Ah. You know? it was just there were too many industry people for it to be a good night. That room, you know I, I don't mean? think that room was good. I had some good times in that room. But, yeah, but uh, but it's just one of those yeah. nights. I get it. Yeah, full flat. It was one little of those flat. nights where it was just a little flat, yeah. and I walked away and I felt it all going away oh. and everybody patted me on the back and said, you did good. Yeah. You know, oh, I remember Ruth Buzzy coming out and saying like, that was great. Like oh, that. That and I was like, Oh God, it was the kindness. Yeah. The kindness was killing yeah, me. They, the, the compliments that they erase themselves as they're coming out of their mouths. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was, that was good. That was, was no good. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You really have something there. <laughs> You got the makings. Yeah, that's the you got worst. The, the worst. You got the tone. recipe. Just don't cook it so long. Right, as if they're answering you, just saying like, "Did I suck?" Absolutely. Yeah, and and sure enough, like a day later, I got the call that uh, Jim McCauley didn't think I was ready for the God Tonight Show, damn. and that I lost the Tonight Show. And you know, I mean, that has created you know that's that's caused suicide before. I mean, you know, Lubitkin people have killed themselves. Not, yeah, not, I, Lubitkin yeah. didn't do it over that though. No, he couldn't get spots, and yeah, and yeah. but well, it wasn't that he lost the Tonight Show. It was that without the comedy store, you couldn't get the Tonight Show. You couldn't go to the next level. When did you get to the store? Uh, I got there uh, to stay. I went there in 1979, uh, and I auditioned for Mitzi, and I stayed at the Saharan Motel, which is a character in the book. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and. Uh, and I remember walking in and having a hooker come up to me and say, do you want a date? And I thought, wow, it's Sadie Hawkins day. I, I didn't know <laughs> yeah, what was right. going on. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and I, I walked in there. I, 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 uh, this, it looked like something from a cop show to me. And, uh, like I had, I had walking up I, the stairs to the, the booth. Yeah. I was in the Rockford files. I was in uh, Beretta, yeah, you know, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. It was a new world for me. And I was reading the late great planet earth by Hal Lindsey mm. that it was purporting to, uh, to ap- have absolute knowledge yeah. and, and surety that, uh, the world was going to end very soon. Uh-huh. And it, there were bi- biblical references and everything in there. So I wanted to check them. I went and asked the manager who was wearing a Stetson, and and, uh, and and smoking a, a stogie by the pool if he had any extra Bibles because I wanted to check the, the Bible references at the in hotel. my book. Yeah. And he started howling with laughter and he threw his hat down and he said, boy, there ain't a Bible in Allah Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew where I was. And uh, But I auditioned for Mitzi uh, went on that trip and she... I never got to see her. I never got to, she was sitting at the back of the room and I again had a kind of a weird night where the mic fell apart and in my hands. Why can't they fucking get like, oh, good goddamn, we need one thing to do our job. (laughs) One thing. 
Yeah. But I think it was just, it was just one of those nights where I wasn't in the right spot. So I didn't wait. I blew past her so fast and went back to Canada for two years. That's what I do. I screw up the first time, then I regroup. I came back in 81 to stay in Los Angeles. Yeah. And she let you in? And she, yeah, right away. It was, it, I, it was on and I was a regular and it was a, a fantastic moment, man. What a, what a door to open. And Bud was always cool with me too, you know, spots at, at the improv. For some reason, I never experienced that. Uh, you're not supposed to play one club or the other. I just, it never happened for me that way. Well, yeah, by the 80s though, that, you know, that shit was, you know, if you were big enough, they weren't. They weren't burning each other's clubs down? No, anymore. no, that, those days were over. <laughs> but who were the, who were your contemporaries at the store in that, in that year? Robin, Robin, uh, you know, it was uh, me, it was Kinison. It was Robin. It was you know, Eddie Murphy was coming in to try stuff out. Richard Pryor was there all the time. Right. Richard Pryor was going through a really weird period where I think he had done, you know, he had done the first uh, thing and he had burnt up. Right. You know? right. Yeah. Yeah. He was yeah. questioning his abilities because he was doing it straight. And he went, it went in and out. I found myself in the parking lot one night, uh, you know, 21 years old and, uh, standing everybody else left and suddenly i found myself standing with richard Pryor. yeah uh which is enough to you know for any comic to just wet his pants yeah you know uh and we passed a joint back and forth uh-huh. and uh he said be careful with this stuff and uh he said i don't remember 40 years of my life huh and i said what <laughs> and i was dumbfounded yeah. i said what and he said I'm not sure it was me. Huh. And it was like a, a harpoon going through me. Like the greatest of all time yeah. I was having those kind of doubts. Yeah. You know, of course it was him. Right. Of but, course it was everything he'd ever lived. Right. But at that moment, he was having real, real serious doubts about whether it was him who was inspired to do it or it was the drugs. But you've had that feeling? Yeah, sure. I, I called my father a night after I smoked a joint and I went on stage yeah. and I eviscerated the room yeah. and Kinnison even was at the back of the room and he started messing with me just to see what I was yeah, made yeah. of. Right. And, uh, and I just annihilated him that night. Oh, good. And, and, and it was amazing. <laughs> and, uh, I was, I was Lenny, man. It was just coming. It yeah, was just yeah. like, yeah, man. Yeah. I needed the rim shots, yeah, yeah. Pap and pap, you know? And uh, I was a comedy priest, man. Oh, it's and, good, um, man. It's good when you can yeah, nail was, the bully in the back of the room. <laughs> oh my God! But he was just—he was just testing, testing me. And uh, and uh, and I did fantastic. And I came off stage, and he came up, and everybody came up, and they said, "Holy crap, man! You were just off the hook. You were you were transcendent, man." And I went, "I was high," ah. you know, and. I, I went home immediately and I called my father who was a jazz musician. Uh-huh. And I said, cause I, I started thinking, well, maybe should I do it this way? Right. And I called him up and I said, you know, uh, you must've run in, you know, being in the jazz game, you must've run into a lot of musicians that were using and heroin stuff and things like that. And he said, yeah, I knew a lot of guys. Yeah. I knew a lot of guys that were getting there that way. And, and I, I never did because I figured if I made it that way, I could never own it. Right, right, you know, right. And that's exactly, in fact, what Richard was going through. Right, moment, right. Whether he could, wondering whether he could own this greatness that everybody 
Interesting. You know, yeah. Uh, gives to him. So you, you, you chose know. against it. I chose against it. I can't do it. If I can't take credit for it, what the hell is it worth, man? You know what I mean? That's, but that's interesting that people would look at, look at it like that. I mean, there were so many dudes. Like, I certainly did my share of drugs. Yeah, me too, man. I mean, I'm no, I'm no, I'm no choir boy. Right, you know? right. But, but I never, didn't... I never created and, uh, you know, relied on it to create. Well, yeah, there, there were cats that couldn't, couldn't get on stage without it. No. Yeah. Like, and, you know, I knew a lot of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Steve Kravitz used to walk around the halls at the comedy store going, was I on yet? <laughs> oh that's great so what's the kennison story oh well you know uh when we met uh he was working the door and he had started uh doing late night spots right. about you know the last one yeah. like you know 1 in the morning right and uh that's all he could get at that time and he came up to me and at that point i was already a regular and i was in playing in the main room and i was getting standing ovations every night yeah. and he came up to me and he said, man, I'm, I'm just such a fan. I love what you do. And uh, I, I go on really late at night. I go on the last spot in the, in the original room. And uh, would you hang out and watch me? And I said, yeah, sure. So I, I hung out that night and, uh, and I watched him. Yeah. <laughs> Makes me cry to think about it. Uh, I sat at the back of the room, man, and I watched the world change. Yeah. You know, and uh, and I was crying with laughter. Yeah, and it's the first time I had ever seen somebody marry. You know, comics are usually intellectualizing things. Yeah. you know, right. they 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 go above the emotion to intellectualize something and say to the world, you know, here's how you deal with it without having to come apart. Uh -huh. But he was the first one that was immersed in his emotions. Yeah. And his anger, yeah, and expressing that at the same time as there were these brilliant routines that I had never heard anything like, yeah. And I felt like I was watching Bird, I was yeah. watching Charlie Parker, oh, I was wow. watching, you know, early Miles Davis. I was like, I was seeing something really extraordinary. And he came off stage and came up to me and said, "What do you think?" And I said, "What do I think? I think you're it." Yeah, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, good luck to you. <laughs> Because it's that's going to be difficult. Yeah. Uh, plus, plus he picked. I knew that he had picked a character and a persona, as we speak about the book. Yeah. And the personas we create that sometimes we can't live up to. Uh, the beast. He created a persona that he couldn't get out of. Basically, or every live time up he to. got every it, yeah every time he got sober, people came up and screamed in his face. Yeah. And uh, needed him to be the beast. You know, and yep. so that was a very hard thing to get out of. We used to, we drove to Tulsa together and uh, he was, he was going to train me how to preach and we were going to go on the road because he wasn't known yet. We were going to go on the road as Pentecostal preachers uh -huh. and he was going to call me lightning boy, Jim. Uh -huh. And I was going to do his, the thing. We never got to do it, but uh, I got to listen to him preach in the garage with brother Marnie and the family. Some energy, right? It was the energy. Incredible, incredible energy. And I and it was it was kind of wild to see because he hit so hard, you know, at a certain point that uh, he got kind of carried away and frozen in the image of himself. And so you notice like the second album and the second yeah, or yeah. third letterman isn't as tight and isn't as it's more about who he's become. Well, it's, it's, it's about what he had to say. It became, you know? you know, it became sort of like, I can do this, this fucked up. 
but it also became like a rock star. He became yeah, a rock that was star. Crazy. And every rock star in the world was fawning all over him. So it was tough. It's a tough ego thing, man, when you're faced with that kind of, you know, reverence, you know, coming at you. You know, I didn't think he was able to handle it. Yeah, but the guitar thing, I, you know, my feelings about him are complicated, you know, but uh, but it just seemed to me that, you know, the clarity of that first record or the night you saw him or the night yeah. that you were hanging out with the vision, him. vision, yeah. Yeah, and, and like, you know, yeah. a lot of people don't realize, like when you walked into the room and he was doing that shit from that first record, the, the you know, he changed this, you know, the energy in the fucking room. No, it was like, crazy. It was menacing, dude. It was and, like and menacing. Woe, woe to those who became offended enough to leave because then he was ripping you apart. It was the guy had his dick in her purse and yeah, it was, I hope you find a lump. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, my God, he would go to places that people were just, what did he say? But, you know, you also you know, were able to create a sort of different energy because of the, the intensity you brought to it. And you, you became a star before him so i'm imagining you're looking at him going through his paces and i don't know how close you guys remained you know during that time or if you were at all or, or you or he used to hide himself from you at that point but i mean there was a time when we got when we got when we split you know yeah. because he was going down that direction of the outlaw yeah and uh i you know i i hung for a long time with him and we got in some scraps and together and you know, there was some, you know, it got pretty hairy around Sam, you know, yeah. it, was, oh, like, yeah, it was pretty hairy. So I just know myself and I know that I wasn't meant to be, uh, I, I have a, I have a, a rebellious streak, but I'm not an outlaw, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And me too. And me I, too. And I, there, there came a time where, uh, we had a sit down that did not tur turn out well. Right. Uh, because he wanted me to come on the road with him. And I said, I just can't, Sam, I'm sorry. You know, I just, I, I'd like to I live. To do my own thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm clinging to this thing called life. <laughs> that was always the feeling I got. Someone's going to go down. It's probably going to be, and it me. Will be me. Yeah. Exactly. I'm the guy that catches what meant for him. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. But, you know, it seems like Rodney was equally as important in his life as he was in yours. Rodney was important to so many young comics, man. He just opened a door for a ton of people. All these people that had personal experiences with Rodney. I mean, the first time he ever hired me, he looked at me and he started laughing. And he said, kid, have you ever been in love? <laughs> and he just was tickled by the fact that I just had not had any human experience whatsoever. Right. It was just pure love coming at it. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, we had just this wonderful, magical relationship. And I still quote him to young comics and people that I know, you know, uh, there's a, there's a bit of it in the book, you know, uh, where, uh, you know, he would say to me, you know, kid, you got to make the tank so strong. No boneheaded motherfucker can fucking stop it. You know, no bonehead can get in your way because the tank's too strong. Yeah, he know? was a real warrior comic, that guy. He was, man, and, and, a, and a surgeon, a surgeon. Yeah. If you look at those old old shows of Rodney Dangerfield with Johnny Carson. Oh, yeah. I mean, Johnny was like, oh, yeah, and then what happened? Yeah. And, oh, that must have been fun. <laughs> like that. He's just literally just marking 
the, the, the space between the jokes with sounds. It was oh, the, the best thing that happens yeah. is when, when one of them doesn't work as well as he wanted. You should just stay out of my way, man. Yeah. You know what I mean? But when a joke flops, I love when he's sort of like, oh, should have should have tried that one again at the club or whatever. You know, he's got those <laughs> yeah. moments where. Yeah, I got to work on that one. Yeah, I got to yeah, work yeah. at that one. You know what I mean? <laughs> Boy, I got to tell you. And, uh, you know, we had we had such a beautiful relationship and he was always my friend and he loved my father. And he, he, he stuck with me when I was experimenting and the audience had no clue what I was doing. Whereas other people jumped ship. Which bit? Uh, I was, I was in Vegas, you know, doing, I, I, I called it uh, performance art cause it just wasn't funny any, you know, right. at that point I was just exploring. I would spend like 15 minutes being a cockroach escaping from a vacuum cleaner, you know, <laughs> and that would be the substance of it. Or I'd be the guy, this snake, the guy that wanted to deal right there on stage, yeah. you know, or whatever. Uh, and uh, they just, I, I was an alien from another planet. And Rodney, and what did he say? He said, you're trying some stuff, a huh, kid? Like that. And I go, yeah. And he go, that's good. That's good. Keep it fresh. Keep it fresh. You know? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and yeah. And uh, he was, he was just a, a, a big supporter and a big fan. And, uh, and then, uh, when he passed, Joan gave me this lovely box uh, with a leather bound box with Rodney's favorite shirt and his pot pipe. Uh, so if you know Rodney, you know that that's pretty much the grail. Yeah. You know, right. the pot pipe. Yeah. You know, keeps me creative, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was that beautiful link to the past that was so important. Yeah. You know? And then I got to meet Pryor and all these guys and Robin Williams, who was just you know, the fastest gun in the West, just absolutely incredible. You know, so I, I just, I can't even tell you how, how lucky I feel. I don't know how you feel about your era. Did you feel that for your era of, at the comedy store? Yeah. I mean, I got to, when I was there, it was mostly Sam, you know, and I got yeah. kind of caught up with that and dice was also breaking, but I used to, I saw Richard come in a couple of times and he was beaten up again. You know, he was trying to, yeah get back on the horse again he wasn't sick yeah, he yet. would literally be at the microphone saying i'm not funny yeah yeah I, and the audience would go no you are it's you rough. are it's and he'd rough. go no i'm really not i don't i don't feel funny right and now. and in terms of like guys my generation who were there like when i was at the store it was it was a little dark period and not a, people didn't really love to come around there like even industry people were a little wary of the place and you know yeah. but all those cats that you were there with were still around you know like joey came it's like in saturday night live isn't it it's like it's like it goes through those phases phases where that's the yeah there's a kind of a down period where nothing well the sam period was very dark because he would bring in when he was running the place sam it was all the porn stars and the weirdos and the drug fiends yeah. and the satanists it was a crazy yeah. dark time and then you got people yeah. like joey Kamen and jan haber doing sets and karen haber sticking, <laughs> sticking tennis balls in his mouth exactly you know in, in, yeah. the, in the midst of this chaos and i was living up at crest hill and sam would party up there <laughs> jugglers yeah and becker would say becker would call us the manson family yeah because we were up there just like yeah, yeah it was pretty decadent it was it was an important period in my in my life but i had to run away being chased by things only i saw i got myself into a psychotic drug-induced state then i had Did to you really yeah and i oh. got into a fight with sam and i lost my mind yeah. on cocaine and i had to go yeah. <laughs> regroup and it took a couple yeah. of years <laughs> after you called your second grade teacher and said why did we never get together yeah yeah what's happening <laughs> are you available how old are you what are you now? doing tonight yeah yeah <laughs> I went back to New Mexico and I 
kind of pulled my brain back together and restarted my career in uh, Boston. Started because yeah. it was good always- for you, man. I'm so happy for you, man. I, honestly, I, I think you're great. Oh, and thanks, I, man. And I really, I really love it because you're an honest guy, and you you share that in a really cool way. It's always you know, been about I, the stand up, you know. At the beginning, you know. yeah, it's great. It's wonderful to watch. I I enjoy stand up so much watching it. You know, I don't know if I'll ever go back to do it. It could happen, but but I uh, I love it. Was there a point where you were like, I, I, you know, I've got to go a different route here? Like, you know, there's a, a, a mention in the book where you were like, it seemed like, you know, when you were in Vegas, you kind of saw that life and it didn't yeah. seem like that was the life you wanted. I could not die there. No, I don't. But you knew it was a possibility. I, I do not trust white tigers. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I cannot, you know, no, the whole atmosphere. I can go to Vegas for a night. But, you know, the controlled atmospheres and the rooms and stuff like that and the trying to whatever, there's nothing on the television. So that just compels you to go down and spend your money. Last time I was playing at the comedy store at the Dunes, uh, I was with Dice, actually. Yeah. And uh, he was in the room going, don't let me blow this last hundred bucks, man. Yeah. Like that. I'm going, what do you mean? And he goes like, I'm serious. I, like I got a hundred bucks left. I've lost everything. Yeah. And you, you can't let me blow this last hundred right. bucks. Like that. And I go, okay, I'll, I'll try to keep an eye on you like that. And I went in the bathroom to go pee and I came out and he was gone. Yeah. And the hundred bucks was gone. Yeah. <laughs> that was the dunes. And I, and she had the store there, right? I had the store there and I was playing there as a featured player at the store. The, the texts were impossible. Yeah. Can I have a stool? stool get stool yourself man <laughs> two-bit comic whatever and they were just brutal and uh i remember being in my room one night and uh i had i was going through a phase where i was listening to positive affirmation tapes and were you depressed uh, no i was just trying to motivate myself and oh. move the universe sure. the secret before the secret ever yeah, existed. Yeah. right right i was always doing that so uh i put those headphones on and i laid back on my bed and my uh uh, tidy whities and uh, and I fell asleep while I was listening to You Are a Winner and Everything Comes Easily to You. <laughs> Cue the seagulls. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah. and I was listening to that and I fell asleep and I was blissed out sleeping and suddenly I, I sensed something or heard something and I, I kind of like slowly blinked my eyes open. I saw light coming in from the hallway yeah. and I went, Oh, I must have left left a light on. And then I looked to the other side of my bed, right beside me at the nightstand. I saw something moving. And initially I thought, is that a cat on the table? And then I the depth perception kicked in. Yeah. And I realized I was staring at a human face about two feet away from mine. It was a woman with long hair going through my wallet <laughs> on the nightstand. What? What? Going through my wallet. And I leapt out of bed and grabbed her. And she got up and she was about six foot four. What? And she kept saying, she was acting like she was a prostitute, saying, uh, they, I thought you were Frank. They sent me up for Frank. Like that. <laughs> yeah. And I grabbed her and I threw her out into the hallway. With, the door was fully open. Yeah. And apparently I hadn't put the bolt on. Right. And she came with the... Uh, with the uh, do not disturb sign and just flicked it open. Get out of here. And uh, yeah. And uh, I, then she ran to the elevator where there was a guy holding the elevator for her. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was so freaked out and I called down to security and I went down 
to the security office, which was like, uh, you know, the police station in uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. I mean, it was huge. This police station inside the casino <clears throat> where I looked at mugshots and I found her. And they said, oh, yeah, her. Yeah, she, she works all the hotels. <laughs> Did you have your deadbolt on? <laughs> Were you listening to motivational tapes? Uh-huh. She saw you <laughs> yeah. coming. Yeah. Yeah, she saw you coming, buddy. <laughs> so that was just bizarre. That was Vegas. Like, that was a- you are a winner. Yeah, nope. So that was Vegas. And when I saw the dunes go down, when I saw the demolition of the dunes, which is in Casino, by the way. Yeah. It marked a, a, a moment in my life that I was very happy about. I was glad to see that go. I bet. So like, so how does the transition? I mean, obviously, we don't have time to go through everything. But I mean, was there like any when when I, I know you did a few movies and you're obviously a, a, a known quantity. But when Living Color happens, was there any part of you that was sort of like, well, I'm a stand up. I, I don't know if I'm going to. No, I was always up for new uh, directions and new experiences. But Damon, you knew Damon and uh, Keenan from. Damon was at the comedy right. store with me. And we did Earth Girls Are Easy together. How great was he to watch? He was fantastic. Right? So funny. So edgy, man. So incredibly dark. And he can uh, riff, dude. It, unbelievable. And and just courageous beyond belief. Yeah, for courageous sure. beyond belief. He had the sickest routine, some of them. I remember one in particular where I don't know if your, your listeners aren't going to see this, but uh, uh, but his sister got beat up by her boyfriend uh-huh. and he went to visit her in the hospital yeah. and she was really messed up. And he said, why are you going out with that dude? What, what is it? What is it? Why, why are you doing that to yourself? Yeah. And she says, I don't know. There's just something about him. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like him. I fell out, man. It's... I fell out. Yeah. It's... And uh, he's the one that invited me to do and living to audition for in living color. And, um, uh, God, it and what, changed but my life. did you guys have any idea, you know, what that was going to be like? I mean, in, in conception or was it just a sketch? I mean, what was the pitch? Cause it was Keenan. Cause Keenan was doing stand up too a bit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Nobody had done the sketch stuff. Yeah. Really. I mean, you know, when I got on the show, Damon said to me, you're going to have to come up with some characters. I'd never done characters before. Right. Oh, really? So I just kind of opened up my perception and started looking for people in characters. Yeah. And, uh, the first one was Vera DeMilo. She presented herself to me at uh, Gold's Gym in Santa Monica. No kidding. I was getting a, a, a smoothie and she came up to the counter and said, right, can I have a protein smoothie, please? You know, and uh, it was this wonderfully humunculous woman. And uh, and I, I went, well, there's one. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then started evolving into characters. Fire Marshal Bill was born out of a sketch that, uh, Adam Smalls and Fax Barr and I um, uh, created called the Death Wish Foundation. Uh, and uh, it was a sketch about, you know, kids who are passing away and uh, and their their posthumous wish is what we were uh, concentrating on. Right. So they would make posthumous wishes. <laughs> and my posthumous wish as this sick kid was to go to an amusement park after I die. Right. And so it would be me on the rides, you know, flopping around in the seats on the roller coaster and stuff like weekend at Bernie's. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and that didn't get on, but the character stuck yeah. and the character became fire marshal bill. Oh my God. That's a, a nice dark, uh, backstory. Crazy. Right. We had, we, the, the, 
that grouping of people, and I wrote a lot with Steve Odekirk, who was also responsible for a lot of my early success and just did incredible, incredible work. And when people went to see Ace Ventura, they were going because of Fire Marshal Bill. Right. Sure. They were going to see what this lunatic is going to do next, yeah. basically. And they and they were happy with what they saw. So it was it was really wonderful. And uh, but Steve Odekirk and I wrote wrote that late night after we'd written sketches for for uh, in Living Color. The first Ace Ventura. You know, the first Ace Ventura. We rewrote the original uh, script. Uh huh. And uh, I, I didn't know if I was actually going to do the movie or not. I had a trap door. I didn't have to do it if I didn't like it. But we got so pregnant with it that it was just, we were just out of our minds with laughter over this thing. And uh, it was a, a, a freedom that everybody should operate under the, the idea that it's never going to get done. So just go crazy. But then it, then it was like crazy because then like you basically defined the, the movie comedy business, you know, for like years, dude. I mean, that 94 is freedom, man. It's freedom. It's the idea of freedom. If you get out of the way of the zeitgeist, man, if you get out of the way of the of the inspiration, you have the courage to do what's in your head and what you think is funny, you know, then then you hit a nerve. Then you hit the back row. After Ace Ventura, you could do whatever you wanted. Yeah, I was very fortunate with the mask and Dumb and Dharma right after that. But each time I was going, okay, don't get safe, don't get safe, don't get safe. Yeah, you know. So when the when Dumb and Dumber came along and I got my first big payday, I knocked my billing out of my tooth or my bonding out of my tooth out of rebellion against uh, Mammon. You know. Yeah. I didn't want to become a Mammonite. I wanted to be an artist. Always. So you were you so uh, you were against the I, the greed monster. You so I showed up with the bowl cut and my tooth. You know, I was really knocked out. out. Yeah, I have a bonding on oh, my okay. front so tooth. You just took so that. whenever I went back to do any dumb and dumb or anything, I have to. And the first time, I just took a bic lighter and I went, yeah. and I knocked it off. Right. You know, and I showed up like that, and Pete Fairley was just Pete and Bobby were, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lloyd. Hello, Lloyd. You know, and uh, uh -huh. it was it was a, a reaction to becoming popular. I, I wanted to fly in the face of it. And I, all the way along, like the stand up into the in living color sketch stuff into the movies and now into the to the book and into the art, mm -hmm. the, the, the comics, the political cartoons. It's it, I think I have this disease that will not allow me to become really entrenched in people's minds in one place. Well, yeah, I mean, I think as as time will tell, you're you're entrenched in people's minds in, in a lot of different ways. Everyone has got a different Jim Carrey in their mind, I would think most right. people. Yeah, but that's because I take the chance and I and I I challenge my audience a lot. You know, I I, I ask a lot from them, a lot of understanding from them. I think I'm going to go off now and not do anything that you like, and I'm going to develop a new thing, and then I'm going to bring it back and you know, glue it onto the thing you like. Right. And also you take, you take chances and you talk about that in the book that, you know, part of that, you know, those chances are, you know, the battle of seeing yourself as a failure. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that, you know, that, you know, when you do take a chance and it doesn't pay off, even though you're artistically were, were, were knew you were taking that chance, there still is, you know, the public's opinion of it or the critical opinion of it versus, you know, what you feel. And that's a hard place to be sometimes. Yeah. But you can't, you can't step in the direction of appeasing. You can't pander. 
Right. You know, sure. you can't pander and create at the same time. It's just not conducive. You know, it really isn't. You can hope that they will like it, that it will hit a nerve, but you can't pander because they, even if they don't know it on the surface, they know it inside. They, they instinctually know. What do you think was the biggest risk you ever took really in, in films? I mean, there's so many things, but, but, you know, I, uh, Philip Morris, I got a lot of resistance about, yeah. uh, especially the, uh, the, uh, sex scene, butt fucking scene. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, they, my people went fucking mad and so did the film company and, uh, and they were just out of their minds over that thing. And I said, you know what? You're the guys that would take the horse's head out of the Godfather. Stop trying to file down the fucking edges. And I fought and I fought and I fought and I threatened not to promote. And I did everything that an artist can do to say, you fuck with this, I'm gone. You know? And uh, that was an interesting day because that was that gentleman's first day as an actor. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was a very precarious position to be in on your first day. But with these more serious movies, the ones that, you know, you really kind of, you know, you know, challenged, I guess you would consider challenging your fans expectations by doing, you know, roles in, um, you know, uh, I, I don't know. Eternal Sunshine, I think, you know, was your greatest dramatic role, really, for me. Yeah. Didn't you? And Truman Show, I think the, the magic of Truman Show was was that the concept was so original and prophetic. Yeah, you know? absolutely. As it turns out, everybody has their their bubble they're living in now. You know, everybody's Truman now. That's for sure. You know, like I get asked a lot, what, what, what do you think happens to Truman when he leaves the, the stage and goes through the door? And I say, he has to watch everybody go back in to the stage and try to seek what he had. Right. You know, yeah, that, yeah. that fame yeah, and that yeah, focus. Yeah. And, uh, so he's alone again. <laughs> yeah, I always pictured, you know, like there were periods where I'd hear about you, like, you know, it, we don't really have too many common friends. I guess I just made assumptions that, you know, I'd see you publicly go through these different relationships and have these hard times. And then I, I read an article about, you know, you had this... Uh, Scared Straight, the Jim Carrey story. Yeah, yeah, the butler that I thought was fascinating. I just picture you and your butler there in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Just you sitting there. You really just can't call it a butler now. It's like a house manager, house really. Manager, just right. does, like, yeah. Keeps the house from falling apart, just, yeah. from becoming, a, you know, a great expectations. But, but like you sitting at a, at a Citizen Kane sized table eating dinner by yourself. And... Right. Oh, bud. That's right. <laughs> but uh... putting a with uh, some beautiful woman putting a puzzle together <laughs> angrily. Yeah. yeah. Wishing she would go out. Feel, feeling unrealized. Um, but did you take, were you, did you study acting at some point? Yeah, I did. I, I went down, you know, when I quit the store and uh, doing stand-up. You actively quit stand-up? You just said, I I'm quit done. stand-up. I, I said, no, I, I went, I can't do this. It's leaving to Vegas, which is right. the Impressionist okay. Act. Right. So I, I, I knew I couldn't pursue that any longer. So I just walked away for a while and I studied Meisner and Stanislavski and I, I did acting classes and uh, started auditioning for acting roles. And uh, then two years later, I got the bug again and I went, okay, now I think I, think I can come back to it yeah. with a different perspective and actually create my own persona. 
you know, and that's what I was after. And I struggled, man, for a long time. People yelling at me to do Golden Pond and do the crowd pleasing oh, yeah, act yeah, again. Yeah. And uh, even Mitzi at one point in Vegas said to me, you're a, you're the king of impressions. What are you doing? <laughs> like that. And I said, you know, they freaked out when Bob Dylan went electric. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Hey, what you it's, say it's, to uh, that? I need a grace period. She went, okay, whatever. <laughs> like that. And then she still supported me. She still supported me. And, uh, and then I slowly started to develop. I, I did six months where I challenged myself by not allowing myself to repeat a word that I said the night before. Okay. So I would go up unarmed completely and bleed in front of the crowd. And, uh, you know, whereas I saw Robin doing his thing and I knew he had bits and I knew he would branch off in the moment. I, I figured if I trained, it's like training with weights on, if I didn't have anything to go to, uh, and I just either sank or, or swam, uh, I would come out the other side, a stronger artist, you know? So I did that for six months, man. And I bled before I went on stage every night. Like I was starting off in show business oh my God. again. It was horrifying. And uh, Sam came up to me at a certain point and he said, uh, man, I see what you're doing, man. You've got giant balls. You've got giant balls. And everybody's watching, you know. Uh, and, uh, and comics were back there. If you're not going to use that bit, man, yeah, right, I heard right. what you're doing. If you're not using that shit, I'm doing it. Right. You know, whatever. And uh, a couple of, you know, entertainer type comics, you know, sure. gobbled up my old impressionist act and went to Vegas with it. Really? Yeah, I used to have people coming up to me and saying, like, your act is killing in Vegas. Did you let them have it? Yeah. 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 So you come out the other side, you know. I came out the other side one night in my bed. I, I used to literally go to bed at night going, what do they need? What do they need? What do they need? What is it? What's my thing, you know, yeah. going to be? And, uh, and one night I just shot up in bed and... Uh, and said out loud, they need to be free from concern. Uh -huh. It's the old thing I've been doing my whole life. They need to be free from concern. Yeah. And, and it was like a revelation that I would become the guy, my persona would be the guy that was free from concern. Right. And in doing so, you know, they would, uh, <laughs> through osmosis, get that feeling for themselves. Yeah. Right? right. And then, the next night I went to the comedy store and I said, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and how are you this evening? All righty then. And they realized I don't give a damn how they are and I'm not concerned. And I, you know, and I'm really not going to wait for an answer. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and, and that created my stage show and my persona. It also created Ace Ventura, the attitude of Ace Ventura. Wild man. Yeah. And the end of your standup. But it's, it comes always from the belief and, you know, the book touches on this a lot, that fear of erasure thing, man, that causes everything from, you know, egoic tyrants to uh, to racists. Sure. You know? Yeah. People are afraid to be replaced, you know, and it's and it's the weakest thing that you could put out into the universe. I've always believed that that I don't know how I'm going to find a place for myself, but you know, the front door has been blocked, but I can go through the basement window. I know that there will be a, uh, an opening. There will be something presenting itself. So I've had that undying belief my whole life. Yeah, it's, it's what drives you. So after this tremendous expansion, both ego-wise, fame-wise, money-wise, 
you know, uh, you know, women wise and in, in, in everything else. Was there a point where you came up empty and that's where you crashed? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. There were many crashes. There's still crashes. But you what know, do you attribute uh, that to? Do, how do you feel about your mental I health? I attribute it to, uh, I, I believe that no one gets through this life. It's too challenging and there's too much stuff coming at us. We don't have the bandwidth to handle it. Yeah. We have to find ways to escape it. We have to turn the gadgets off. We have to find moments of in nature. Meditation is helpful, really helpful. Uh, breathing techniques, you know, there's a lot of that's, you know, I, I, I get up and I, walk and I do cold plunges and I, you know, I do give my body every chance it, it can, can get no more medicine, be healthy. I have very little supplementation, you know, oh, yeah. in my, in my life. Yeah. You know, just a little, little uh, handful of pills or uh, supplements yeah. that I take yeah. you know, with dinner and that's, that's about it. But no, I still get into spirals of thought and, uh, you know, just eruptions of, of anger and disappointment in humanity you know, in the human species, in, in the narrowness of someone's perceptions. But no existential sadness? I don't think so. That's no, good. No. Oh, good for you. No, really not. No, it's not, it's not a, just a general depression good. anymore at all. Great. It's been at times, but no, I don't have that. I know when I'm not happy, I'm not in the place I should be. Right. Yeah, or yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm indulging in what I call time travel. Yeah. You know, the ego doesn't ever allow you to stay in this moment. It tries to ruin this moment. Yeah. You know, you and I are the only thing in the world to me right now. Right. You know? Yeah. And the trees outside that are kind of, sure. you know, tickling right. my senses. Right. You know, there, as soon as you lose that, you're caught in ego. You're time traveling. You're going back to regret or you're going forward to fear. Yeah. Or yeah, your brain's just making shit up for you. To react to. Yeah. Yeah. And half the time, it's stuff that has never happened. You're having a fight and then some kind of crazy oration with somebody that you've never even met. That's right. You're reacting to things. You're assuming that they're going to hate you. Yeah, they're not real. It's not real. Not real. So much of what we go through is not real stuff. So much of who we are is not real stuff. I get that. That's where where the book takes you. And you get in touch with me and let me know if it takes you there. Because that's what my intention was is to do to with through this absurdism, you know, and this auto fiction to get to a place where I can actually give people a glimpse or a feeling of freedom from grasping. Well, I'm excited about it. I'm sorry that I, I didn't finish it before I talked oh, to you. Oh, that's okay, man. But I that's will. Okay. I'm the slowest reader in the world. Yeah. And cause I'm enjoying yeah. it and I didn't know if I would, but I like it and I'm going to finish it and I will, uh, you know, Griffin Dunn called me yeah. yesterday oh, he did? and said that he had read it in two sittings and he's dyslexic. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are kind of, so, you guys have things in common. I feel. I think so. He's, think he's, so. he's a heavy cat, you know, he's a heavy cat, man. Yeah. And an incredible family. What a family. Yeah. Yeah. Just genius family. So I'm reading, I'm reading Joan Didion right now. I, I just finished Joan Didion's a year of magical thinking. A year of magical thinking. Yes. Yeah. So heartbreakingly beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, I love talking yeah. to you, Jim, and I'm glad we're- You too, man, and we'll do it again. We'll do it again. I, I'm, I'm sorry we haven't hung before this, man. It's just, uh, it's a great opportunity to to kind of connect with yeah. people I admire. I love it. Anytime when we get, when we're able to talk again, you can come over. Is it still your garage? It's a new garage, yeah. 
New garage. I'm in, yeah, okay. I, I'm in a new. You've gone Jay Leno. You have 20 cars sitting no, there? No, dude. It's like 200 a, cars? No, but I had to make it into a little house. I got no, I got no, I got one car and this garage is now like a little house next to my house. I'm very lo-fi myself, man. Yeah. It's, stuff does not turn me on. It, I don't, I don't. You know, at one point I got the Mercedes McLaren and I just got tired of getting flipped off by people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know I, got, I, mean? I got, I got, I got what I thought was the, a nice car. I got a Toyota Avalon. I'm like, this is a little too nice for me. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, well, it's fantastic talking to you, man. Really lovely. Great work with the book, and let's talk again soon. Thank you. Okay, buddy. Bye. That was interesting. I, I, I think I did all right. He called me after, and we had a nice chat. Stand up guy, that Jim Carrey. Uh, and again, the book co-written by Dana Vashon with Jim is Memoirs and Misinformation, a novel. You can get that wherever you get your books. And that's what's happening, man. That's what's happening. Okay? Congratulations, everybody. You did it. Another day. Here's some dirty blues guitar.